Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. Today's episode is the launch of a new series I am calling UN Correspondent Chat. From time to time, I will check in with an in-house reporter at the United Nations headquarters in New York to discuss the latest news, buzz, and intrigues around Turtle Bay. And I am so pleased to launch this new series today with Margaret Bashir of The Voice of America. She has covered the UN since 2008 and has been a great source of news and insight to me over the years. We cover a lot of ground in this conversation, including how the UN is responding to the situation in Venezuela, the significance of a breakthrough on Yemen at the Security Council, the implications of Palestine taking over as a chair of a key group of countries, what to expect from the US at the UN in the coming months, and whether or not any other diplomatic breakthroughs may be possible on the horizon. This is a fun conversation and sets a good tone for the series, I think. Big thank you to Margaret Bashir for joining me. And Margaret wants to emphasize that the opinions she gives are her own and not that of Voice of America. So with that disclaimer, let's jump right into it. Here is the first installment of UN Correspondent Chat with Margaret Bashir of Voice of America. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Well, I think people have been worried about Venezuela and this building for a while. Uh, There's 2.3 million refugees flowing out of the country, and I don't think people in the wider world realize that. You know, we're so focused on the refugee crisis in the Mediterranean, but uh, people aren't really talking about it. You know, you've got uh, 2.3 million Venezuelans who've gone to Curaçao, who've gone to Colombia, who are moving throughout the region. So the problem has been percolating for quite a while, and it really is kind of coming to a head right now, now that there are these two competing governments. Um, By the time uh, this airs, though, we'll have had a Security Council meeting on Saturday morning. Uh, We hear Mike Pompeo might be coming up to this meeting. So the Americans want to talk. uh, They've asked for the meeting. They want to talk about Venezuela in the council. And, uh, you know, as you know, the Americans have recognized the opposition leader, Juan uh, Gallardo, I think is how you pronounce his name. And uh, so, you know, this is opening up I think, more splits perhaps here, because there are countries that don't have a problem with Maduro staying, Mm -hmm. a large number of countries. So many of them are on the Security Council. Correct. Uh, So so Russia Russia specifically is is back to Maduro. I'm sure China will be one of those countries that says this is an uh, issue of internal concern for Venezuela. It's none of our business. Stay out of it. You know, you, you have a lot of countries that always 
follow that line because they don't want anybody coming around to them at some point and poking around in their so-called internal business. So So this sets up like a kind of almost familiar dynamic by now at the Security Council in which you have the United States and Russia on competing sides of, um, of an unfolding and escalating crisis. One sort of, I think, dynamic that is is an additional wrinkle here is, of course, that you know these two, you know, the U.S. recognizes one government, Russia recognizes another. Um, who gets seated at, at the United Nations, and and how in the past has like the UN General Assembly approached these kinds of situations where you have kind of competing claims to the throne? Well, I seem to recall at the beginning of the Syrian crisis, there was a similar thing where several countries that were very upset with Bashar al-Assad said, like, your ambassadors, we shouldn't recognize them anymore, because a lot of countries were trying to delegitimize the Assad regime. So, uh, but their ambassador has been here for the entire time, like he's never left. So uh, for Venezuela, the UN spokesperson has already said, um, you know, he, he was asked, what if the opposition president tries to name a, UN, a, a new UN ambassador? You know, what will the UN do? And the spokesperson said, uh, you know, well, they don't engage in hypotheticals. There's a permanent mission here at the UN, and that remains the mission the UN deals with. And, uh, you know, sovereign governments have the possibility to decide whatever they want in relation to recognizing other governments. That's a you know, you know, that's in the bilateral relation uh, department, and that's between governments, and the UN doesn't intervene in that. So there is also a credential committee here at the UN, a group of countries on that. I think there's maybe nine or something. I'd have to look it up. But uh, but they would, I suppose, get it eventually if it became a bigger issue. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, again, it just sort of seems like early in the year, we, we've had this this new unfolding crisis in Venezuela, and it's just like a lot of kind of familiar dynamics seem to be uh, at at play. Um, but also early in the year, we've seen like a first real breakthrough of in in, in the years long now war in in Yemen with the Security Council approving a new UN mission. I was trying to figure out how to pronounce this. Um, is it Unmaha? <laughs> Uh, you know, they said it. They said it recently. I guess was at the vote um, doing it, and I I forget now to tell you the truth. I, it sounds like uh, one's clearing the, the throat. The, it, it's the, the UN the mission acronym again. Un, it's UNMHA, the UN mission to support the Hodaida Agreement. Un-Maha. Right. So, un un un. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Despite its I awful acronym. I was acronym. doing radio. Yeah. I was doing radio on that story and I decided just don't go there. I was like the UN mission on Hodata. <laughs> well, so yeah, it, it's significant though. You know, jo- joking aside, this is the first real Security Council breakthrough on um, the the Yemen humanitarian crisis. I mean, it's not we're not talking about like a peace agreement for all all of Yemen. This is a narrowly focused mission to support the implementation of a peace agreement um, that was forged under UN auspices in Sweden uh, at the tail end of of last year. But now the Security Council is backing it up. Can you, I guess, briefly explain what does this new mission entail? Sure. So, I mean, I have to say, I think this is a big breakthrough for the UN. And this war is dragging on. It'll be four years uh, in March. And it's a huge humanitarian crisis. The United Nations says it's the largest in the world. 80% of the Yemeni population needs 
emergency assistance. I mean, there's a financial crisis. The economy has collapsed. People can't afford to buy food. Uh, they're not, the civil uh, servants aren't getting their salaries. The pensioners aren't getting their pensions. People don't have money to buy food. And uh, it's a country that imports nearly all of its food and fuel and medical supplies. They don't really have a lot of agriculture or anything in Yemen. So they're very, you know, you need currency. And that's why there's a food crisis because there's it's not that crops have gone bad it's there's there, there's no food coming in because of problems between the Saudi-led coalition and, and the Houthi rebels at the ports and there's uh, no money to pay for it on the part of you know the everyday Mr. and Mrs. Yemeni so it's uh, it's a huge huge problem and uh you know, they, these poor people have had a cholera epidemic that affected over a million people. They've had all sorts of tragedies uh, upon them because of this war. And uh, for Martin Griffiths, the envoy, to get the parties to Sweden in the first place, I'm not sure. You know, I, I think a lot of people were probably skeptical that anything would come out of it. It was the first round of talks. Uh, you know, they began, I think, shuttling between the rooms. The envoy went back and forth between the parties, but then they had some direct talks. And that's unusual at a first round. And then they actually had some agreements come out of it. And so they agreed uh, to have this localized truce around Hodeida, which is not just a port city, but it's a whole governorate. And there's several ports uh, there. There's Hodeida and Salif and uh, Ross something. And uh, so now the, there's been a big de-escalation around the ports. There have been violations, but there's been a big de-escalation, which is an accomplishment. And, uh, you know, this should help alleviate. They can start bringing in cargo to, to help people, to feed them and to give fuel to hospitals for generators and, and all that sort of stuff and to aid workers to drive around the country to deliver the aid. And so basically, like the agreement, doesn't the agreement basically like, again, sort of call for like a local ceasefire and calls for the withdrawal of forces yes. and calls right, on like the, the city. Yeah. And calls and for like a pretty small UN mission on uh, prisoner exchange. Too. Well, it also calls for a big prisoner exchange and they're still working on that. They're in Jordan. Uh, there's a committee that's working on that and they're going to exchange uh, several thousand prisoners, which is a big step forward. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, so the mission is going, I think it's going to be about 75 monitors, and they're there to verify that uh, the truce is being kept and, uh, to, you know, to to get things moving uh, in terms of the redeployment and uh, things like that. So they're, they're there for six months initially. I mean, the UN isn't looking to move to Yemen permanently. This is going to be hopefully, you know, a short uh, stabilizing political mission. It's a political mission, not peacekeepers or anything. These but are just unarmed a, observers. A, led by a Dutch military guy, though. Uh, right? right. But yeah. you need somebody who has that sort of logistical experience mm -hmm. to and that war zone experience, because if you, you know, you send in a bean counter to Yemen, I mean, that's kind of terrifying. You need somebody who knows how to deal in the, and what, I mean, the, there's a huge amount of logistics involved in something like this, so, especially, you know, main roads are closed. You have rebels on one road, you have, you know, you, you have to deal with all of that sort of stuff and you have to deal with the militaries of each group. So is it your sense that the security council and others like around the UN view this agreement, which as you said, and I think we're rightfully right to emphasize the significance of 
this uh, local agreement to the broader humanitarian crisis in, in Yemen. But is there a sense that this might be perhaps like harnessed to um, encourage like a, a broader political reconciliation in Yemen? You know, this was not a, like a peace agreement for Yemen. This was like a local ceasefire, basically. Yeah, no, this is this is step one, right? So let's see if we can just have a little de-escalation and, and move goods in and out and calm people down and move back forces in this one crucial city. I mean, it's a major city on the Red Sea. Uh, it's the lifeline, you know, they refer to it constantly as the lifeline. Hodeida is the lifeline of Yemen. Mm -hmm. And so if they can, you know, it's like getting New York City, if there's a huge war in the United States, like having New York City as a, a safe place, you know, it's a major, major artery in this country. And uh, if they can do this there and sustain it. Sure. It's, it's great because then that will hopefully lead to a larger, eventually the hope is a nationwide ceasefire and de-escalation. And, you know, if you can get the parties to put down their guns, then maybe they can finally talk seriously. So I'm wondering how you suspect or how you think this agreement, which was a breakthrough, um, Sort of affects wider Security Council dynamics. I mean, for for so long, the Security Council was paralyzed on some key international security issues. Yes, I mean they were routinely reauthorizing UN peacekeeping missions, um, you know, unanimously. But on some of the key big issues around the world, there was just paralysis because of differences of opinion among the the, the major powers. Um, I guess. One, do you see this Yemen agreement as leading to any other breakthroughs? And if so, like. What other potential opportunities for breakthrough do you see in the coming months and, and and weeks as we sort of enter this new year? Well, I think it just depends on the issue. The, the council, sure, it's paralyzed completely on Syria, and it has been since day one. But on other issues, like look at North Korea. If the U.S. had come, you know, U.S. came in and asked for these really tough sanctions, uh, and then that led to a lot of tension, but it eventually got to uh, the first summit. So, you know, whether you are of the camp that the Trump-Kim summit accomplished something or accomplished nothing, I mean, it still got them to talk, right? And so now there's going to be another one in February, probably. So there has been traction uh, where there hadn't been any. And the Chinese came on board on those sanctions and stuff, which was really no easy feat. I mean, I've been around this place a long time, and I've seen them negotiate sanctions before on North Korea. And when Nikki Haley says she wanted those sanctions in a week, we were all laughing our heads off, you know, because we're like, good luck a week. Nothing happens here in a week. Not, certainly not North Korea sanctions. And wow, she got the sanctions in a week. So, you know, I mean, things can happen sometimes. So um, do I see it, you know, progress in Yemen maybe may leading to progress on Syria? No, honestly, I don't. I think Syria is an animal all of its own. And, and we can talk about that uh, further yeah. on. Uh, you know, will, will it help Ukraine where there's a frozen uh, conflict going on? No, I don't think so, because you have Russia, a permanent council member on one side, and they're certainly not changing their position. And you have uh, U.S., Britain, France on the other side, and they're certainly not changing their positions. So, I mean, there's some things that are just going to be intractable. So, but so, maybe yeah. on like, oh, sorry, Myanmar, yeah, or, Myanmar okay. or maybe on Myanmar, it could help. Uh, you know, there's certain like the Chinese don't like to be pressed on it in public and they don't, you know, but maybe behind the scenes, it could lead to something. Who knows? So uh, 
uh, yeah, why not? So, so lastly, on the Security Council, there are at the start of 2019 five new members. I, I wrote this down, but I can't find. Who they are. Let's see if I can remember. <laughs> I, I, Indonesia. Let's see. Indonesia. Well, tell me what I get wrong. Okay, Indonesia, okay. Dominican Republic, Germany, and two more. One begins with a B. I'll Belgium, give you a hint. Belgium. Okay. okay. And... and the other one is two words located in Africa. One of and one of the words in its name is Africa. <laughs> Come on, South Africa. Yeah, Mark, oh, bravo. South Africa. <laughs> I thought, okay, yep. right. Oh, sorry, I'm looking. So South Africa, Belgium, DR, Germany. I, I initially went to the Central members. African Republic, but I'm like, wait, that, oh, that's three wow, words. That <laughs> no, okay, yeah, okay. So, so those those are the five new members, including some you know key powers like South Africa and, and Germany. Right, the um, Ger- Germans, Indonesia, so, a huge country, yeah, yeah. major in its region. So. How will their entry to the Security Council as non-permanent members like affect the dynamics? Like, what what are you sort of expecting? What are you seeing so far? Well, so far, I have to say, you know, January is always sort of a quiet start to the year around here. People are still in their home countries and things like that. But we've heard, we've had an opportunity to hear publicly at some of the meetings from the new players. Um, I think maybe like Belgium could be sort of the new Sweden on the council because the Swedes were really uh, active on the humanitarian front. Uh, They they worked with the Kuwaitis a lot. They steered a lot of the resolutions on uh, Syria. They were very out front on humanitarian issues. I sort of feel like I could see Belgium maybe trying to step into their shoes a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, South Africa, definitely a major player regionally and, you know, would aspire to a permanent seat on the council at some point in time. Uh, I've seen the South Africans on the council before, and uh, they're always a heavyweight, you know, for the elected 10 members. They're always definitely um, a, a major player. We have the Germans, again, another country that wants to see itself as a permanent member of the council. And, and you know, some of the elected members play above their weight in a way. And I would say Germany is definitely one of those members. So we'll see how they interact and we'll see how, uh, you know, you have several Europeans on the council now with Germany and Belgium and you have the French and the Brits and, you know, it's a Poland. So heavily European council. So, but the elected yeah. 10 are definitely trying to assert themselves more. I've noticed this in the last two or three years. They're they're really making efforts to challenge the permanent five members on things that, you know, because let's face facts, a lot of the heavy duty negotiating around here takes place behind closed doors among the P5 or among even a smaller group of the P5. Like for instance, on North Korea, it was the US and China. They did it all. Then they went to the other members of the five. And then once they all agreed on it, then they went to the 10. And a lot of times the 10 feel like, hey, well, we didn't get really to participate in you big boys do it. And then you come to us and expect us to rubber stamp it. And they've put up a stink on a few occasions about that. So I think we're starting to see the E10 assert themselves more. And I think, as you you noted, like Sweden in particular, I think was a pretty effective, um, you know, non permanent member, being able again to kind of like, you know, thread the needle a little bit and and harness some um, unanimity around humanitarian issues where otherwise, kind of the big powers were were, were butting heads. Yeah, they were really effective on the council and definitely punched above their weight. Definitely. 
Um, so beyond the Security Council, one kind of interesting dynamic that will unfold in 2019 is that for the first time ever, the state of Palestine is head of G7 of the G77, the Group of 77, which is the single largest uh, vote or block of group of countries at the UN. It's a group of what, like 120 something? I think it's 100, 134. 134. And they represent 80 percent yeah. of the world's population. So, so I, I so guess before maybe we talk you've about, never heard of them before, but yeah. they're important. <laughs> So, so before you talk about like the significance of Palestine leading them, uh, just describe like what the G77 is and, and how it works in UN negotiations. Well, they're uh, an economic, like primarily uh, focus on economic issues, and uh, they sort of band together to promote their own economic interests at the United Nations. So, for instance, uh, climate financing is a big deal for them. They're developing countries, I should say, G77 and China. They're all developing countries, and so. In climate change, uh, you know, a lot of the smaller countries are the ones who are, who are not contributing to climate change but are most affected by it. And then you have the big uh, developed or industrialized countries who are doing a lot of the polluting. So uh, the little, you know, the, the developing countries, they want that financing. And uh, so that's something that's been a big issue for them in in this in this group and also and, like uh, I'm sure it will continue to issues, be. Right. Like like when sure. like in in what's called the uh, the fifth committee. Uh, oh, which is the like the UN, the UN Budget Committee. Um, don't need to get too down in the weeds. I'm so but sorry often, for yeah. everybody who is on the Fifth Committee. Like if you're from the Fifth Committee and you're listening to this podcast, I just want to tell you I really feel for you, especially around Christmas, because yeah. these poor people stay in the UN basement until like midnight on Christmas Eve yeah. doing the budget. Well, because that's <laughs> the you say, because that's job. when that's when like yeah. the, the the budget negotiations tend to come to a crunch. But but yeah, as you said, really like often, to adjust their schedule. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so often on these kind of really like important, it's kind of like, you know, it, it's sort of in the weeds internal to the UN, but it is like important yes. um, about how the UN functions. The G77 will often like band together on on these issues. And um, what do you see as the significance of the fact that Palestine is 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 now the elected head for the year 2019 of the G77? And specifically, like, how do you think like the US will approach negotiations with the G77 with, um, you know, Palestine as its as its chair? Well, I think part of the significance is that uh, this is sort of enhancing the Palestinians international uh, profile, let's say. And so at the UN, like, let's not forget, they're not a full nation there they were promoted in 2012 from observer status to non-member state observer status which is also like obscure un stuff but they're not a fully recognized country yet and obviously we have the whole crisis between the palestinians and israel and that needs to be resolved before they can really be a, a full member state because until then the u.s will continue to block their membership because it goes through the security council um so i don't know i mean i think i don't know how it'll affect uh, the U.S. dealing with the G77. I mean, I think they have to deal with them. I, I don't think you can just say, well, we don't like who the chairman is, so we're not going to mm -hmm. deal with you. But it, the U.S. is probably not happy that this is enhancing the Palestinians' international status because they want they the Washington feels that the only way they should do that is through out uh, you know is through direct negotiations, not outside of them. And uh, in October, I think it was when they had the vote um, to make 
Palestine, the head of the G77, the U.S. representative at the meeting, said only U.N. member states, like full member states, should be allowed to act on behalf of major groups. And, yeah. you know, they weren't happy about yeah, it. Yeah, that, so, yeah, you know, they, they expressed it. Those clearly. groups can't let, wouldn't let, like, the U.S. tell them how to operate their own internal, like, um, you know, bureaucracies. True. Yeah. So, um, but they were overwhelmingly uh, elected. I went back and looked at the vote numbers. So there's 193 members in the General Assembly. Only three countries voted against them, and that was the United States, Israel, and Australia. 146 voted yes. There were 15 abstentions, and 29 countries decided not to find their way to the General Assembly that day, yeah. and they just avoided the issue. But um, but I think it's important for them, and also as a head of the of the G77, it it means. The Palestinians can now participate in international conferences as the chair of this group. Uh, they can, uh, you know, they they can do certain things that they couldn't do as a just a non-member observer state. <clears throat> so um, they'll be submitting uh, and, and co-sponsoring proposals and amendments and different things like that. So it really does raise their profile. So uh, on the U.S., another sort of interesting dynamic that I think um, – we'll see for the first several months of, of this year is that the United States is not led by a, you know, Senate confirmed ambassador. Heather Nauert has been nominated, but um, you know, I don't even think. Her well, has she been nominated? Because, uh, you know, the president made clear his intention to nominate her, but I've been kind of keeping an eye on the lists that are coming out of the white house with the That's nominations that are being sent to the Senate. And I have not seen her name on any of them yet. You know, that's so actually a, a good point. I, I he, don't know he that she's I, I officially know. nominated. That's, I don't know. That's a good point. Cause <laughs> so, so the, uh, you know, I, you're probably on the same email list as I am. And I, you know, get a blast from the White House every day about various mm -hmm. nominations being sent to the Senate. And I, I right. she actually wasn't on any of them. I assume she has been not, well, well has been sort of nominated well, without being formally nominated. She's been named by Donald Trump as right. the person he, he would like said, to represent yeah. her. So, but he does change his mind. So yeah. I don't know. I mean, until she's until she's nominated in black and white, I don't know that she's nominated. And uh, she hasn't been doing briefings or anything. So I think because she's potentially nominated, she's either studying or not allowed to be in mm -hmm. front of the cameras right now. But which, uh, which leaves but the U.S. I, being led yeah, by an acting U.S. ambassador, right, Jonathan Cohen. Right. Um, so, so I, I guess, like in general, how does that affect the dynamics of how countries interact with the U.S.? Um, like, like in well, terms it's of still the U.S. Like, it doesn't matter, yeah. you know, who's leading. I mean, they have to deal with the U.S. There's just no not dealing with the U.S. Uh, but Jonathan Cohen is a respected career diplomat. He was before he was here. He was a deputy assistant secretary of state. He was based in Baghdad as the deputy chief of mission for a couple of years. Uh, he's been in the foreign service for decades. I mean, he's a really competent State Department uh, career officer. So in that sense, I, I think like, you know, it's great. It's no problem uh, that that now or isn't here yet or anything. I think where the difficulty might be is, uh, you know, with someone like Nikki Haley, she had basically a direct phone line into the Oval Office. And I doubt that a career foreign service officer yeah. can just pick up the phone and call and, you know, get through. And, you know, also Nikki Haley was a member of the president's cabinet and inner circle and all that. So she had much better access to the president. She could influence his decisions about uh, foreign policy uh, here at the U.N. And, and perhaps even beyond the U.N. But I don't think someone like Jonathan Cohen has that 
ability, you know, based on the fact that he's not a political appointee. So I think that's the area where I think it's more within the U.S. that it's an issue rather than the U.S. dealing with other countries because countries just have to deal with us. And that's that's how it goes, you know. So along those lines, like, is the government shutdown affecting anything about the U.N. right now? Well, uh, the mission, the U.S. mission to the U.N. is is definitely on a scaled back staff. And uh, I, I know from my dealings with the press office over there that that they are affected uh, by it and that we've gotten some queries back saying due to the shutdown, we can't answer your questions. So uh, I, I assume they're affected like everybody is. I don't know how it's affecting the U.S. in terms of like committees at the U.N. I have heard some uh, buzz about it, though, that people are saying that things are a bit affected. Uh, you know, not as many diplomats are here. And there are a few senior diplomats that I would normally see in the Security Council or in other, uh, you know, they take the seat and they're like, Kelly Curry, I haven't seen her in ages. I don't know where she is. You know, so there are people. So I'm wondering if some of them are furloughed. Um, so sort of to, 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 to wrap up, um, what other stories or, or events or um, trends are, are you looking out for in the coming several months uh, around the UN? What should we be watching out for? Well, I think definitely, you know, it's always Syria watch, always. Uh, I don't know if it's a futile exercise at this point or not, but uh, it's been going on forever and it needs to be resolved. But it's just shifted so much in the last couple of years. I mean, it's really Russia's game right now, I think. And uh, we'll there's just, a new there's it, a new uh, UN envoy, right? Gare Peterson. That's right. Gare yeah. Peterson from Norway, who's a really respected diplomat. He was here as ambassador. So every, you know, a lot of people know him. That's one of the really nice things, actually, about the UN is that people cycle through here as political coordinators or deputy ambassadors or ambassadors. And then they go out to the be, the, you know, the foreign minister in their country or go on to some other post, but then they cycle back here sometimes. And so people know each other. And so Gare Peterson was the ambassador here for quite a while. And then he left to Beijing for Norway. And now he's been appointed the envoy. So he's back and he has huge experience in the Middle East. He was part of the Oslo, I think the Oslo Accords and things like that. So he's got a lot of Middle East experience. He's well known in the region. So, uh, you know, but it's a thankless job being that Syria envoy, isn't it? I mean, you know, you had Lakhtar Brahimi, then you had the late Kofi Annan, then you had Stefan Di Mistura, who really hung on there for about four years. But they just can't seem to move it, aside from some small uh, localized truces, some de-escalation zones, you know, some there was some movement of civilians out of bad areas and things like that. But there's just been no real breakthrough. And the Syrian people need it. It just can't continue like this. I, I really thought in 2015, when the refugees started going in huge numbers to Europe, I thought that there would be a breakthrough then because the Europeans would say, we don't want to deal with the refugees, so we've got to fix Syria. But even that didn't move the needle. So I don't know what they're going to do to move the needle, but they need to do something on Syria. And um, I think something I'm also a little concerned about in the next couple of months uh, to watch is the Democratic Republic of Congo. Mm -hmm. uh, on Thursday, Felix Teixeira was uh, inaugurated as the new president. But you know, some segment of the population doesn't think he should be the, you know, does, doesn't think he legitimately won. And uh, I think when you have that sort of doubt in a place like DRC, where there's been no peaceful transfer of power in 60 years, that, that you know, that can still 
present a, a problem. And, and the UN has uh, huge equities in, in the DRC, you know, 20, it's huge. Largest, I mean, they have 20,000 peacekeepers yeah. and police and military and civilians. They're helping to deal with the Ebola outbreak there, more than 700 cases of Ebola. Uh, you know, and when you have great insecurity, you want to be sure to contain the Ebola, but yet there's insecurity. You know, it's, it's difficult. It's a difficult environment. And uh, in the east of the country, the ADF, is the, the terror group is threatening civilians. So there's a lot going on in DRC. And I don't know. I, I think it's something to watch. I think it's something to yeah, watch. I, mean, I don't think that this know. inauguration is the end of that story. Yeah. Um, well, there's, there's obviously like any number of things we, we could be talking about. Thank you so much for speaking with me, Margaret. Thanks. It was a great chat. Thank you, Mark. I enjoyed it. All right. Thank you all for listening. Big thank you to Margaret. That was fun. I'm looking forward to doing more of these uh, from time to time. I don't think it's going to be like a monthly thing. Uh, probably maybe, I don't know, every six weeks or so. But it's going to be a regular series in which I check in with an in-house correspondent at the UN just to kind of take the temperature, take the pulse of what's happening at the UN. All right, big thank you again to all of my premium supporters on Patreon. You help keep the lights on at the podcast. Big thank you to you all for that. And I'll be sending some more goodies your way soon. And if you've not already done so, please join the referral program of the show where you can earn rewards for simply telling people about the show. To learn more about the rewards you can earn, just go to the description field on the podcast episode page in iTunes or if you're listening or go to the homepage on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Uh, that referral program is going to end in just a couple weeks, so jump on it now to accrue as many points as possible. All right, see you later. Bye.